Hey all, we're back. Welcome to Film Suck, a Patreon podcast in which we ponder the work of art in the age of crap cinema. I'm Eileen Jones. I'm Dolores McElroy. And today we're talking about Asteroid City, the new Wes Anderson film, um, in which, of course, he is always, he writes, directs, and produces, but he co-writes in this case with a long-term collaborator of his, um, Roman Coppola. The film stars a cast of thousands of Anderson favorites, including <laughs> Jason Schwartzman, Edward Norton, Scarlett Johansson, Tilda Swinton, Adrian Brody, Willem Dafoe, Jeffrey Wright, Lee Schreiber, Jeff Goldblum, Fisher Stevens, and Bob Balaban. Plus, there are some newcomers um, to Wes Anderson world, including Tom Hanks, Brian Cranston, Margot Robbie, uh, Maya Hawke, Matt Dillon, Steve Carroll, Hong Chow, blah, 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 blah. You get it. There's a million people um, <laughs> uh, who are well known. Uh, for once, in a startling omission, there is no Bill Murray, however. He got COVID and had to give up his role. Um, he's the guy with the with the funky cabins out in the, the desert uh, who runs the place as Steve Carroll took over um, um, took over the role for him. Um, and just so you know, just to, if you can even encapsulate this plot, but this is as close as I can get. The <laughs> film is about uh, it's a so-called <laughs> junior stargazers and, pace, and space cadets uh, convention in 1955 in the tiny American desert town of Asteroid City, where a crater left by a supposed, the supposed falling of a meteorite ages ago is the main tourist attraction. Um, there's also atomic bomb testing nearby, sending up occasional mushroom clouds, which accounts for the strong military presence in the town. During the convention, a small group of brainy teenagers are awarded prizes for their space-related inventions, and there's an actual space alien um, who lands in the crater, al thus altering everyone's experience, at least temporarily. Um, so that's as close as I can get. It's so vignette and there are so many characters. There's, mm -hmm. it, we'll try to get to most of it, but it's going to be tough. So let's do, do our takes first, if I can even come up with one. God knows, it's really hard. Um, Dolores, <laughs> what's yours? Okay, I'll plunge right in. Uh, so I'm not predisposed to loving Wes Anderson films, and uh, my experience of this film uh, did not predispose me in a different <laughs> direction. Um, but I, I, I'm going to try to be generous with this one. I think more than other Wes Anderson films I've seen before, this one does have some kind of larger meaning. Um, but for me, it's very annoying to watch um, mm -hmm. because of the Wes Anderson things. <laughs> so as you know, if you you've seen any Wes Anderson films, the mise-en-scene are immaculate. The decor is obsessive and so historically accurate that it's inaccurate. You know, it, there's something about <laughs> all of it that is like ultra stagey. And of course, people in the real 1958 or whatever don't all wear clothes and have cars from 1958. They have mm. clothes and cars <laughs> from older periods. But this is like everything that he does and like consciously, you know, he's not stupid, um, is like immaculate, precise, uh, balanced, uh, obsessively. I think I could live with that. Um, but I decided once and for all that it's the camera work that I find uh, irredeemably off-putting. So mm -hmm. he always has these like cutesy pans where instead of like cutting and setting up in a different location, he'll like pan across the screen or tilt. Mm -hmm. And it makes every, gives everything like a comical satirical air. Mm -hmm. And I hate that. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I could never invest in this as a real world. Mm -hmm. even momentarily. And 
uh, I've always disliked the dialogue that he writes and the style mm-hmm. of acting that he demands from his actors. So mm-hmm. the dialogue is incredibly clever and up its own butt mm-hmm. and always a little off center of like making any kind of dis- statement that would orient you. Mm-hmm. So, you know, instead of telling us that the children's, I don't know, Jason Schwartzman, Schwartzman plays a recently bereaved man and he's in the desert with his kids. He has to tell them that their mother has passed away actually three weeks ago. And instead of like making that clear, I don't know, I can't exactly explain it. Um, I'm not doing that right. But <laughs> the things that comes out of everyone's mouths are like uh, never quite the declarative statements you need to be oriented in the story. Mm-hmm. And everyone sounds like a philosopher. Literally mm-hmm. every character talks about like the meaning of the universe always. And uh, with a, with a sort of like affectless line delivery, you mm-hmm. know um, like they all, they all talk like this. The meaning mm-hmm. of the universe is pie, um, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, two hours mm-hmm. of that really gets to me really hate yeah. it. Um, <laughs> Yeah. So, and it's all, you know, it's, you know, you listen and you're like, mm-hmm, this hangs together. It's smart, but I'm, I'm never moved. Not even mm-hmm. remotely. I mm-hmm. mean, not even close. Um, this one was interesting. I, I like, I, I, I'm like familiar with and invested in all of the elements around it. So I, I love New Mexico. I'm, I spent a lot of san- time in Santa Fe, which is not so far from Los Alamos, where they designed the atomic bomb. Mm-hmm. And this, this, um, the Southwest that Wes Anderson presents is a mashup of like both Los Alamos, Los Alamos, where they developed mm-hmm. the bomb, Roswell, where there have been mm-hmm. alien sightings. And then, but it also looks like uh, Utah, you know, mm-hmm. like Monument Valley mm-hmm. and sort of Arizona, <laughs> whatever. It's fine. Mm-hmm. And I, I, like, I'm not mad about that. He's just doing an imaginary Southwest. Mm-hmm. Um, so I like all that stuff. And I'm interested in the like Route 66 kitsch of it all. That's, it's a cool look. And I think mm-hmm. it's pretty. And he does the, the color portions are supposed to, I, I don't know. I'm still confused. There's a framing device, but I'm getting the sense that like the movie is a play mm-hmm. that um, yes. these characters who are in black and white are putting on. And the black and white world is also interesting to me. It's kind of it's 1950s American theater. Asteroid City or sorry. Um, yeah. Asteroid City is the name of a play written by mm-hmm. a Tennessee Williams like playwright, like a gay Southerner. Mm-hmm. Um, there is an uh, Aaliyah Kazan type figure played by Adrian Brody, the like macho but sensitive and tortured director who literally lives on the set. Mm-hmm. And then there's kind of a sort of a Marlon Brando figure in J- Jason Schwartzman. And there's like a famous, there's like a scene where the Schwartzman character kind of like Brando walks in and kind of impresses the Tennessee Williams like character with his ability to be natural and act and like seduce him. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, I like all those things. I love Tennessee Williams. I love Aaliyah Kazan. I love 1950s theater. Mm-hmm. Uh, these things didn't, I don't know. Uh, again like lots of clever references all on the screen Mm -hmm. by Mm -hmm. someone who clearly knows a lot about the period but it wasn't assembled into a meaningful whole for me ever and like the moments that i did find something in it were so an alien does land in the play version of what's happening in the color version in the desert Mm -hmm. how these people see the alien and i think there's something about the alien that uh, it makes people 
there's there's a conversation about like um, maybe being doomed between mm-hmm. Scarlett Johansson and Jason Schwartzman. Mm-hmm. Scarlett Johansson plays a movie star. She's there for reasons. Uh, and, mm. and there's something about the film that is, I think, at the end of it, for me, like alluded to how to have hope or just like going through the motions of having hope and falling in love anyway, even when mm. you suspect your world is doomed or like soon mm. to be over. Mm. And in the in the film, the soon to be over would be evidenced in the atomic bomb tests that keep taking place in the desert and the fact that an alien descends like steals an asteroid for a second that puts it back but Mm -hmm. it's just you know the alien could be another like um indicator that uh there are like huge forces that shape our existence beyond our control Mm -hmm. um and you know even those forces within our control like whether or not to develop atomic bombs you know the uh, like the outlook's pretty grim but uh mm-hmm. i guess you go ahead and try to make meaning as best you can like the three little daughters of jason jason schwartzman who mm-hmm. uh insist they are witches and vampires and um do a whole like burial ceremony for their mother's ashes out in the mm-hmm. desert um and you know they're just little meaning making machines doing their best uh mm-hmm. i guess i'll give it that <laughs> but the experience of watching it let me be clear made me want to crawl out of my skin and mm-hmm. if there had been any other films in the theater for adults <laughs> and not like super mario brothers or the little mermaid i would have seen them instead mm-hmm. um how about you eileen yeah you pretty much <laughs> in agreement uh you know wes anderson lost me a, a long time ago and with increasing intensity i i actually i the, the last film i was really really fond well i did love the there was a one-off that i still think is great and was should have been his whole destiny, which was fantastic, Mr. Fox, mm. where where all of the artifice and the distraught qualities and all it just all all worked. <laughs> I think he should just go into animation and skip all of this insane level of artifice um, that you know is always live action. Forth. Yeah, yeah, in, in the live action world, it, um, because you just are forcing all your actors, as you say, to talk the same, to hold these distraught poses, to you know all the Andersonian qualities that are now so overly familiar that you can't help going down your mental checklist there's so much lack of deliberately creating a lack of emotional involvement for you (laughs) that though we'll we'll soon we'll read a quote from a critic who claims to have been totally moved by this film which i find astonishing like a film that keeps trying to stop you from being moved (laughs) at every in every possible way that you could be wildly moved it's just some people who almost seem to me to be determined against all of his efforts to love Anderson's films and find them incredibly <laughs> involving. I don't know. He's yeah. doing everything he can to stop it from happening. Um, you know, I was, I was Royal Tenenbaums era where I, I, I found that he could, he could do all this artifice and irony and everything else and still have emotional scenes. I thought he handled the, the suicide attempt. If you can throw your mind back. Um, way long ago, way at the start of his career, really, really well. Um, and he got all the shock of it. In fact, it seemed to work as a kind of sh- double shock effect because everyone in the film was so, again, ironic, distraught, philosophical, but in a, in a way that didn't never seem fully engaged, all of these things. And then suddenly somebody slits their, <laughs> their arms open mm-hmm. correctly. In the correct, right, exactly. You know, Who would slit? <laughs> yes, exactly. Instead of the, the horizontal crossways, that's the wrong way to commit suicide for those of you. Who care? Got it. <laughs> um, um, but he's just steadily lost me. Um, 
I, Darjeeling Limited, I think, was the kind of point where I'm like, okay, I'm going almost throwing my popcorn down and storming out at this point. I, yeah. And, you know, Grand Budapest Hotel was one of the most loathsome things I've ever seen. And, oh. and you know, Anderson should die for it. And I'm able to <laughs> admire him at this point. I'm just like, I'm not getting this. You, you, he's not making films for me. He's making films for other people. And all I can and try to do is read what other people think who like him. And yeah. see if I can make any sense of it, because yeah, because and it, and what's odd for me is I love what used to be called not so much anymore film formalism, totally. where people do wonderfully concentrated and conscious things with all the aspects of film form, and so you're not trying for a kind of you know, uh, you know realism light. You're you're trying for you know the editing is highly conscious, the uh, the framing devices. There's a color scheme. You know Hitchcock is a formalist. Kubrick is a formalist. The Coen Brothers are formalists. Most of my mm-hmm. favorite filmmakers are formalists. Mm-hmm. Not all certainly. So I should love Anderson because he's trying to be the most formalist formalist to ever formalists. <laughs> <laughs> I mean it's insane, but it's so airless and so suffocating and so irritating at this point that even the most beautiful effects and there are there are such beautiful shots in this film mm-hmm. i mean the one you're seeing reproduced a lot is, Sh- is scarlett johansson as the movie star mm-hmm. um framed up in her they're all staying in these twee little cabins of course they are yes um in the and they uh she and jason schwartzman develop a relationship each leaning sort of leaning on the little sill of their of their you know just bare square you know rectangle you know rectangular you know film screen shaped um almost uh windows talking to each other and Which is a Hitchcock reference, right? It's a very Hitchcock rear window reference, yeah. Uh, but of course, Hitchcock's whole design can be read as hanging together as a critique, or or as a as a recognition, rather, mm-hmm. not really a critique, more a recognition of the voyeurism that's built into cinema, the cinematic mm-hmm. experience, and all the implications of it. And so it's all very satisfying to recognize a thing like that because it all holds together. Mm-hmm. With this, you're just like going, you recognize it and you go, and, mm-hmm. and I wish someone would make sense of it, how that relates to anything else. How does it being a televised, <laughs> narrated by the Brian Cranston character who's playing an old 50s, you know, narrator talking about some sort of, I don't know, legendary stage production that was, mm-hmm. uh, that was televised. <laughs> and then, of course, you, that's the black and white academy aspect ratio part which he also loves to do the different framings um as he did in especially in grand budapest hotel he's got like seven different types of framings and color schemes going um and then you move into the super colorful widescreen when you get just into the events supposedly of the play um so anyway i forget what i was oh but that's that shot that you're seeing reproduced a lot of her leaning in the window and she has a beautiful pose in that window it is, it's gorgeous. It's, there's a lot of gorgeous here. But since, as, as Dolores has already pointed out, it's not gorgeous that seems connected up to anything. It's always evoking a sense that there's meaning happening and that there's emotion mm-hmm. happening. But mm-hmm. for some reason, he doesn't want you to be able to get to the meaning or to feel the emotion. Yep. Which I find baffling because then I, I don't know what he's trying for. I mean, we actually named this episode, I forgot to say, Wes Anderson, uh, Asteroid City, Wes Anderson's Alien Affect. <laughs> and it really does seem like just increasingly, not just for this film, which happens to have an alien in it, um, he, increasingly he's going for that kind of an affect of, of total alienation in a way that I don't get. Other than it seems like he takes a kind of irony damage 90s delight in it. 
Totally. Um, you know, and you were we were you were just quoting. You had just seen a mutual friend of ours who was saying, "What about Wes <laughs> Anderson?" And it is a very nice quote. So what Michael, so Michael Dalbot, if you're listening, <laughs> um, <laughs> he was saying Wes Anderson's like if you'd allowed a child to dress in a seersucker suit and a boating hat all throughout adolescence mm-hmm. and simply told them they were great the whole time. Mm-hmm. And indeed, I just opened up the IndieWire Wes Anderson interview mm-hmm. from a couple of days ago mm-hmm. and. This motherfucker's wearing a seersucker suit of cans. (laughs) (laughs) And it's even like a a blue and a pale blue and white striped one. Of course it is. It's the most affected, you know, and he's been doing this also for as long as I've known about him anyway. And this is just a kid from Houston, you know? Right. Are you in a barbershop quartet man? What is this? This is is the aesthetic. These little narrow cut, you know, twee ass corduroy suits and little belted suits and little. I just you just want to scream and rend yourself. Yeah, he's yeah the because of all queen. of that. Shall we say the seersucker suit aesthetic just is yeah. plastered all over everything. I mean, to the point that you feel like you're going mad. And there's all that referencing that was again it was a very 80s 90s Pomo thing. Mm-hmm. just constant you're just constantly going oh that's the quote from ace in the hole billy wilder film set in the desert they're all desert set films oh that's evoking bad day at black rock oh that's paris yeah. texas oh that and to and what end to, to what, what end? end we're right back to those battle days where it was just a knee-jerk thing that got done all the time and sometimes it was quite meaningful most of the time it was not right so uh, so that's part of the problem. So, so you're you're recognizing references, you're, and you're recognizing all the Wes Andersonian qualities of it. Like now we now we have repeat plots, which I guess we've been having for a while. Yeah, or rather plot elements. So the grieving father with the multiple children. Well, there was a grieving grieving father that was Ben Stiller in uh, Laurel Town Bombs, and he had the twin sons. And now we've got a grieving father, and he appears to have triplet girls and an older son, or at least they're almost they. They're very close in age, the three girls. Um, there's always ga- the gaggles of brainy children. Well, again, you know, R- Royal, yeah. Ten- Royal Tenenbaums was about a, a family of adopted. I think I think there were most of them were adopted children. Um, no, one was adopted, but they were all supposed to be geniuses, geniuses. At, in different things. Um, mm-hmm. So the brainy children, you know, this convention of geniuses who who start bonding in the desert. Um, and you can go through a list of of all of the Anderson traits. And for people who revere the idea of him as an auteur, and he's certainly Mm -hmm. considered one, no arguing with it, I guess, at this point, that's just more, you know, that all, all those are all further evidence of his greatness and his consistency of vision. If you're getting fed up, (laughs) (laughs) you're just saying, how great is it really to just be recycling these elements that just seem to be kind of floating around? Uh, you know, loose signifiers, not attached to anything. Um, you know, let me quote something uh, from, let me see. Uh, it comes out of Vulture magazine. Uh, and I know, never know how to pronounce this guy's name. He's a, he's a top critic. Bill, is it Bilg? I hate to say it's Bilge. Oh, I don't Abiri? know. Anyway, he's well known. It's kind of a long quote, sorry, but I just want to give, give a fair shake to this film by quoting someone who, who gives it a very admiring review. Mm-hmm. So he's talking about you know what people perceive as the as the self indulgence of Wes Anderson and uh, count me into that. But he says yeah. there's a point to all this indulgence. Anderson's obsessively constructed diorama expl- dioramas explore the very human need to organize, quantify, and control our lives in the face of the unexpected and the uncertain, 
The regimented universe of Moonrise Kingdom is sent into a spiraling, spiraling decline by the mania of young love. The Mittel Europeisch, I'm saying that wrong, sorry, candy box <laughs> milieu of the Grand Budapest Hotel is undone by the creeping evil of authoritarianism. The romantic continental fascinations of the French dispatch are hit with protest, uh, protest, injustice, and violence. Asteroid City might be the purest expression of this dynamic because it's all about the unknown of, it's about the unknown in all its forms. Death, mm -hmm. the search for God, the creation of art, the exuberance of love, the mysteries of the cosmos, and Anderson's telling, they're all facets of the same thing. And then a little further down, the audacity and the beauty of Asteroid City lie in the way it connects the mysteries of the human heart to the secrets of science and the universe. When the visitors to Asteroid City encounter an actual alien, it sends their world into a tailspin, both altering their very notions of reality and driving them even further into their prior assumptions. In the face of the unknown, it turns out, we cling even more to our identities. The visitation also disrupts Anderson's ornate cinematic world as the movie becomes faster, stranger, funnier, warmer, almost as if the filmmaker himself were rummaging through his material, desperately searching for an explanation to the mysteries he's unearthed. Uh -huh. um, and then, and then the counterpoint, typical of you know, there's a few you know reviews that are not favorable. This is Deborah Ross of the um, UK magazine, The Spectator. Um, she confesses to having dozed off a few times and says, Anderson is an auteur with a distinctive artistic voice, but it is surely time he found something to say with it. Good so for very her. Divisive. Yeah, yeah, very, very divisive figure. And, and, you know, there's no point arguing. If, for people who love him, they really love him. And there's no going to be no changing that. For people who are getting fed up, I don't know what to say either. Yeah, <laughs> I you, get you more fed up with every this. film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's so I have one friend who she's a classical musician and she mm. loves his film. She says it's like listening to Bach. And I get it. It's very balanced mm. in that way, very symmetrical. Mm. And I'm like, all right. I mean, I'm not going to argue with that. Fine. You know, uh -huh. <laughs> but if you're if you're looking for meaning or to be moved, I'm I was so amazed to read in Wes Anderson's recent interviews, um, obviously connected to the 1950s Broadway element mm -hmm. of this um film that he loved films of the 1950s like Absolutely. those directed by Leah Kazan I'm like what your films could not be further from. <laughs> yeah like exactly. I mean these are like tortured because I think one of the things is and I mean weigh in on this Eileen but like mm. I feel like he doesn't have a sense of like society at large in any mm. of his films I mean mm. I know in some of the films like fascism creeps in as a historical fact but to me it is seldom like individuals against society it's more like individuals against um existential uh facts you know mm. or like or, or like processes um you know like an alien not mm. a government mm. um and maybe that's not bad you know maybe that's refreshing for some people i mean mm. we do live in a world that's like soaked in melodrama which is usually about the individual versus some kind of like oppressive social structure right uh, maybe this delivers people from that i just have a hard time seeing myself or my world in it e even in terms of the emotional structure like i just i don't there there's nothing there for me you know mm -hmm. um so i yeah i i just I, like i don't know where the the social is in his like all his all his films are like made up dollhouse things about people mm -hmm. who aren't real, like children geniuses or whatever, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and it's kind of all about like mankind and the cosmos, but not <laughs> in a way I can nail down, you know? Yeah. The vagueness, whenever I read, like reading that admiring very long quote 
is typical of what I've been seeing, at least among critics who who are really loving the film and lo- tend to love him. Yeah, it's it very vague on yeah. <laughs> like yeah, like it seems like there's got to be academic work. That's all I can think. Trying to give some credit, at sure. least uh, there's a you have to do analysis that, that somebody must have done some work on nailing down what this is at least all supposed to mean. That's the most troubling thing. Like like for example, all the framing devices mm-hmm. to get us into this world that always has a slightly ticky tacky look of either mm-hmm. dioramas uh even those false fronts in west old western movies uh, mm-hmm. uh stage set construction so you're always kind of mentally shuttling back and forth between being asked to, to take it as some sort of recognizable reality and being reminded it's all a theatrical construct what what is that for right <laughs> You know, <laughs> and why why okay. even double down and have it be a televised? So you bring in television and then theater and then totally. What's with the different then, mediums? I like it I, seemed I like know. just for shits. I'm like, do you have something to say about the mediation uh, of like, like yes, exactly emotions or <laughs> but I don't know. Other than the fun of characterizing them, like you know, the narrator of a '50s, you know, earnest, right. you know, who's gonna who's gonna have that very earnest, very square delivery? Brian Cranston does that charmingly. He's a wonderful actor, but you're just watching, going, okay. <laughs> and I mean, yeah, you he's know, just yeah, having fun playing with his little dolls, and like, you know, just you saying know, when like, he tries oh, to say things, they're, they'll, they'll again be big and grand, but so vague. He'll say things like, "Well, this is a movie about, um, uh, you know, post World War II, the in the desert," and you're like, mm-hmm. "Okay," and then there's you just assemble a bunch of shit. A bunch yeah. of cultural factoids that strike you that are fun. Right. Totally. And yeah. it yeah, it just doesn't it doesn't have a worldview, not really, unless the worldview is that of a doll's house. Yeah. Um, it seems like an elaborate what I get from him is fear. Like it's like an elaborate and, and look, this isn't bad. I don't know how to say this in a way that isn't judgmental. I don't like mm. look down on this necessarily. It, I just like don't connect to it. Mm. Like it's an obsessive need to control, you know, through putting, making everything in miniature. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't seem big hearted to me. It seems small and afraid his whole world mm-hmm. um, and the people in it. And I don't, I, I don't know. I like, there's nothing there for me. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, just we, we just we just keep coming back to the same thing. You don't seem to be talking to us, at least in in ways we can understand. Well, this is just so, not for us. <laughs> maybe we can get at it through the yeah. Charlotte, the Scarlett Johansson figure. Yeah, that, let's try that. that. Is one for us. <laughs> yeah, and I and I did like that. The you know sometimes I will be struck. I shouldn't say it's totally unmoving. It's not ever ever very moving, but tiny bits of moving just because. Actors clearly, you know, he's practically now the new Woody Allen in that. He can get any actor, apparently, he wants, even for the smallest role. This was in Woody Allen's heyday, the same thing. Mm-hmm. You get a top actor to come and do one scene for you just for the honor of being in a Woody Allen movie. Now you've got this with Wes Anderson. That's mm-hmm. how you can have Tom Hanks come in and play a, quite a small, not very interesting part. Um, but occasionally, certain actors do some work that is kind of nice <laughs> i don't know how the hell they do it <laughs> because yeah. it seems like the most inhospitable uh way to do acting other than having to be by yourself in front of a green screen it's all going to be cgi yeah. later um but she, it seems to me she really i i like her anyway but she she's you know anthony lane says the same if anyone's if anyone's conveying anything she is though he wasn't very yeah. articulate about what <laughs> but yeah. go ahead 
Well, no, I mean, she. so she's like a mashup of many 50s movie stars. She <laughs> looks just like Elizabeth Taylor in Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. She's got the same hair. She's, you know, naturally fair, but she's got a black wig on. She has naturally yeah. blue eyes. Mm-hmm. At one point, she's framed in her little cottage window with just her upper half showing, and it looks mm-hmm. like that white dress from Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, mm-hmm. you know, very straightforward. She's mm-hmm. there with her daughter, who's a science protege, which is kind of like charming. And mm-hmm. um, she's got two other kids. She keeps saying, by my second Mm ex-husband and the way she talks about those other kids and like how they are when they're together i we were talking earlier they're like lines ripped from judy garland's mouth Mm -hmm. about like relating to her kids and there's something about the way like obviously wes anderson knows his old hollywood lore Mm -hmm. and he's like very conversant in all these movie star biographies and you get the sense like she's a terrible mother she doesn't mean to be she loves her children Mm -hmm. but she's completely focused on her work this is what i couldn't parse um, there, so taking the Elizabeth Taylor track, uh, although some people have referred to the career of Marilyn Monroe as mm-hmm. also another way to understand this, whatever, pick your glamour puss, who's also mm-hmm. a serious actor. Um, she tends to play uh, Johansson's character named Midge Campbell, mm-hmm. Madge or Midge? Midge. 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 Okay. Midge tends to play a lot of characters, she says, who are um, like uh, abused and alcoholics. Or, like, and alcoholics. <laughs> yeah. 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 And she. She even, like, stages herself in a bathtub uh, with, like, pills all around, you know, like a mock suicide. And that's mm. her aesthetic. I, I get that coming out of the, like, Tennessee Williams realm or even, like, the Judy realm. It's whatever it is. It, it, and Marilyn Monroe, you know, it's in the air with famous mm. star suicides and roles about, like, you know, alcoholism and whatever. Mm. Um, and then they keep returning th- to this line. It happens twice. I'm really a very gifted comedian. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because it's a Hollywood cliche. It's almost like, and I'd really like to direct, but mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's it's true. It's something that's certainly said of Monroe. It's it's sometimes said about Elizabeth Taylor, but not mm-hmm. often. But there's something about that that's like, I don't know what he's trying to say about that or that kind of woman. Like, it seems at the end of the day, she's criticized for being like too into her work. We know that she's kind of a bad mother because of it. But she and- says it herself. She's the one who says it. He yeah. says, I'm a bad mother, though I really love my children. But, but, but because my main, she just says it. <laughs> but yeah. my main focus is stardom, and that's why I'm not the best mother. I mean, she just, periodically, the characters will just say what they're not conveying. So she also says to the Jason Schwartzman character, who's the grieving father, blah, 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 you know, we're just two catastrophically wounded people who, I forget what, I forget how she even finishes yeah. that sentence. And I remember sitting there going, She's catastrophically wounded. <laughs> she hadn't struck me as being catastrophically wounded. I thought she was very, I mean, I guess you could just assume it. You know, yeah, she likes star. those roles. Or yeah, <laughs> right. had, you know, her, she's had abusive husbands. She's mm-hmm. wearing a fake black eye, but it's to get in care. Everyone keeps assuming she got it from a last, the last husband, but she's yeah. just using it to get into character for her next character. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's nothing about her that really conveys this is a c- catastrophically wounded person to me. Mm-mm. No, it's and it's so confusing at the end of the day. I was like, okay, is this like one more comment that human beings, even with like monumental gifts, will will always opt to like to create the atomic bomb instead of like living in delight? I I don't know. I'm trying. I'm working really hard. Are you supposed to work? See it as a kind of artifice is like she even envisions who she really is as someone that she would play. Because yeah. you know, maybe that's what the endless, endless theatrical, you know, oh, that's it. No, you nailed media. it, Eileen. That's it. Well, then You're what's correct. he? 
<laughs> I don't know. You know, you're just like, I, at every turn, you're just like, because he's supposed to be a war a war correspondent photographer, someone who, who usually photographs, you know, carnage. Yeah. And, and he, so he keeps saying that, and you keep going, are you? <laughs> There's nothing about him that totally. s- seems to convey that. I mean, he literally has a piece of hair missing in the back where he was hit with shrapnel. And you're like, okay. <laughs> but, like, you, we, th- there's also a device, you know, again, this whole theater thing, where, where you meet the, act, the stage actors trying to play the part. So you meet the actor who's trying to play him. Laura's already kind of referred to this. And, and he's really struggling with the character to try to get across. And, you know, you have a funny, a slightly funny thing where the, the director played by Adrian Brody is trying to tell him, I still think you're overdoing the business with the pipe, constantly lighting the pipe, you know, and yeah. he's got all this constant and the, 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 the picture taking and all this shit, but it's still just like a collection of ticks that you're just like, yeah, I don't, I'm not, but he's supposed to be giving a brilliant performance. And I'm just like, I, I don't know what he's playing. I don't know who this guy is. Totally. And I have I- to say that if you go way, way back to like Rushmore, at least when Bill Murray was playing a guy who seems to have it all, but is a completely emotional wreck. He actually nailed that sucker down. Yeah. <laughs> Whether you love that film or you don't, it's again super early, his breakout movie. You get who that guy is and he that's who it seems to be, you know. But here you're kind of like going, I I don't know. I I I am I'm, I'm lost. And it has some, I I think you're right. Obviously the whole thing is about theatricality. It's got like the film's got three levels of theatrical mediation. Yeah on the stage, you know, as a film on the, on TV. But it still uh, seems to want to be about the right. big questions of grief, death, you know, how, how one deals with these things. Is it that we deal with these things? We can only deal with them artificially. Perhaps. <laughs> kind of self-imposed characters that we play that we can't really part with. I don't because know. he keeps, he begins, our war photographer begins asking permission to take photos. And yeah. that's kind of like, you know, a, like an admission that like, all right, he's doing something like intentional, intentionally framing it. I don't know. Versus on the battlefield where he doesn't ask permission. Right. Like that's not the same kind of theatrical mediation. Right. <sighs> I don't know. <laughs> it still feels tiring. Cause you know, you're just turning it into an academic exercise in a way, trying to figure out, you're saying to yourself, it must mean something. Yeah. So what could it mean? Yeah. And it's not even the fun or the greatness of there. There are films that are so great that they hit you emotionally and you don't even know why they seem profound and you really have to work. That's a different experience than this. This is where it doesn't hit you at all. <laughs> totally. But it seems to be constantly evoking the sense that it should be meaningful. And then you sort of reluctantly start to try to wade in to figure out what, what's meaningful about it. <laughs> That's still, right. God, That's I still right. Don't know. Oh man! And then it in would... the end, what really pissed me off. Then in the <laughs> end, and he loves this stuff too. Like if you remember, uh, Life Aquatic with Steve uh, Zizou, Zizou. Mm-hmm. you've got the little fake undersea animals that are little—I uh, forget what they were like models that are made animatronic. I forget how he did them. Um, okay. they, weren't, they weren't. They weren't the CGI kind of thing. They were little little creatures that, and they're very cute. Well, here there's a Roadrunner. You know that clearly refers to the wily e. coyote thing. That's clear. <laughs> that moves in this herky jerky way. That again, it's a little, seems like it's a little animatronic figure of some kind. Yeah. And in the at the end of the film, and there's all these twee country western songs throughout and everything. <laughs> the the roadrunner just does a little dance over all the end credits. 
Yeah. And I just, I just was so angry. <laughs> I don't know why I was just senselessly enraged by that. It just seemed like such a fuck you. Like, ha ha, I'm just doing this for shits and giggles. This is just fun. I'm just like, yeah. I'm having a little fun roadrunner here. Well, it's interesting you bring that up. I, I was listening to the lyrics of that last song, Over yeah. the Roadrunner, and the, the Twee Little Country song went, got no future, got no hope, something like just the rope. Yeah. Um. So I, I don't know. That, like, that's where I got part of my, like, all right, I guess this is about trying to have fun while things are hopeless. The yeah. the romances go on between the kids in a way there's yeah. a future, or at least in their minds. Uh-huh. And it's clearly, oh. obviously, you know, there's all of this is supposed to evoke where we are right now, I'm assuming. You know, yeah, we are exactly. potentially in the world. facing our end, probably, almost yeah. entirely, certainly. And yeah. yeah, but then that, to have the little stupid, the stupid fake, and it doesn't look like the Roadrunner in the cartoon, it looks like a real Roadrunner, but it's mechanized somehow to do the little cute dance. Yeah. <laughs> I just, just something about it. I, hmm. Yeah, it just enraged you. <laughs> just enraged me. Just enraged because I just had sat there and sat there and sat there. It seems so long. <laughs> it's like an hour and I don't know, forty six minutes something like that. Yeah, so it long. just seems to go on for your lifespan, and it kind yeah. of ends in nothing. Proudly in nothing, you know. The the main the guy who's been presented initially as our main character, the Jason Swartzman character, um, sleeps through the point where the for a while they're they're military they're in military lockdown. They're not allowed to leave because of the alien having come. Yeah. Um, and he thinks they still are and he's oversleeps. So he and his family are left when, every, you know, the Scarlett Johansson character, the movie star has gone, everyone is gone and he wakes up and it's empty and he just gets the kids together and his father-in-law and they drift out of town, you know, and you're yeah. like, okay. I, there's all this blankness that's clearly very, de- very deliberate. Blankness and distance. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it does seem like, you know, with things being so dire, I mean, maybe that's why the Roadrunner seems insulting. <laughs> yes, yeah, no, like, that's exactly it. And, but, yeah. you know, clearly he wants this combination of the the adorable, the sort, I guess, supposed to be kind of funny, and, mm-hmm. you know, the terribly horrible death, uh, meaninglessness, all of this stuff, he, together, is something that he loves. Right. And he's always loved it. I think if you go back to his early, especially if you take Royal Tenenbaums as a kind of model, it, that was always there. Um, yeah. But it used to be imbued with with much more direct, like direct emotional connection than that there is now. It, that has steadily been leached out. And as yeah. if now he's a, he's becoming more and more of the most pure production designer you've ever seen who's actually called a director. Right. You know, you're watching elaborate production design. <laughs> And the framing yeah. is just another form of production design and it gets fancier and fancier and fancier until you just want to scream. <laughs> I feel like I'm watching someone's mental illness be yes. indulged. It really you know? is. It's like that. It's, it's, it's like they, they are, there are, they're drawings by severely mentally ill people that get more and more complex and complex and complex. They can't stop until yeah. the whole thing becomes black. There's so much detail. It's kind of like, <laughs> there's yeah. so many curly cues. There's so many little tiny flourishes. There's so many cutesy. There's so many different color schemes. There's so many, until you just feel like you're going out of your mind. Totally. Yeah. And like, wh- maybe someone should just like, let him be just the production designer, deliver us from his dialogue. Mm-hmm. You know, like, <laughs> I just wish someone would work with him. I guess Roman Coppola does, but obviously he, Roman Coppola does nothing to cut the crazy oh, no. or to like rope this into some kind of like 
something that would communicate something clear and impactful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but presuming yeah. that's what they want, which I more of course and more they don't. I don't think they, they, which they don't seem to. And no. again, you're right. To name Ilya Kazan, I was never more shocked in my life because I, you know, I know when he said that. Yeah, he was completely invested. He and Owen Wilson were best friends, well known. Um, you know, growing up, and they were both way, way into, you know, the theater, the, that theater era, and the presumably the films that came out of it. And you're just like, I, there's no sign of this. No, they're about Please. Kazan's about death, <laughs> and, you know, emotionally and even in terms of the mise en scène, like those films, you know, I don't know when I think of like streetcar or on the waterfront, I feel like the yeah. camera goes in, you know, yes. and this is all surface, maddening yeah. surface. <laughs> I know. And those are films that are so engaged with absolutely getting to absolutely raw points of emotion in a world that is so such a painful struggle. I think of East of Eden or something. Totally. It's like the whole thing is anguish the whole yeah. way. <laughs> and yeah, and it's like you were it, and and again, the look of the, the look of it, there's no twee to Ilya Kazan. No, my so God, one, the opposite. Zero. Yeah, exactly. Right. It's the opposite. So yeah. I guess you're just like, wow, he's and he's being cited in all these interviews as this big inspiration. And you're just like, that is a chin scratcher. <laughs> I'm just like, what? <laughs> I know. Of all people to cite. Yeah, very, very puzzling. It's almost like that's another. Is that another joke? Is that another like weird limp gag that only he and his three friends get? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. It's like Wes Anderson's like if The New Yorker were a film, you know, that's yes. what it's like. Absolutely. And, so when he did French Dispatch, he just he just made obvious what was already fairly clear that this whole sensibility of worship for and you know, he talked about that when he did French Dispatch in, in interviews. All those little curly cues, all the little the you know, the little the little, you know, I don't know, quirky drawings. <laughs> and not even yeah. the cartoons, just the, all the all the little details, the font. You know, he obsessed over all that stuff. He collected those obsessively. And then he wanted the color choice, those you know, kind of pale color choices. He wanted to rec- recreate all of that stuff in movie form. And again, you're like, why? Yeah. What is this cross media thing? <laughs> what is he trying to do? I don't know. He just baffles. It just baffles me. No, he just, I think he's like appealing to... I w- okay, again, trying to parse this with friends. Mm. So Lisa Jacobson, if you're listening, um, mm. <laughs> I, I think Lisa was getting at something like this. And Lisa, mm. I apologize if I'm getting your uh, your idea wrong. But uh, he flatters his audience in a way because if you enjoy the aesthetic, yeah. usually like you get by on the enjoyment of that. That's enough probably for most people who tend to like his films. But mm. then he flatters you that you're smart. And part of this, like, you know, literati who it may not get every single reference, but like you understand when you're supposed to find something, you know, funny or ironic. Um, and it's that vague sense that you're in on the humor of this ultra sophisticated guy that makes you like the films, you know, like, I don't know. And yeah, I would have totally. Yes, that's I, that was really what I thought when I, I think it was when I saw Grand Budapest. Hotel. I forget which film it was. It was mm-hmm. one of them. and. I was sitting in the theater and it was quite, it was Bay Area. So it was, and it was packed and it was packed with exactly the people that you fear and, and suspect. <laughs> or that's the true audience for Wes Anderson. They literally would start laughing before somebody said the line that was clearly going to be funny or did the business that was clearly going to be funny because they were so eager to show that they got it. And I was yeah. just like as, as angry about the audience as I was about the film. I just hated both so, so much. So yeah. awful. 
Totally yeah. cute Nazis. I just can't. I fucking can't. I can't. It's That's so exactly outrageous. right. So outrageous. And and that people are just ate it up. Like, oh yeah, somehow this represents sophistication. You know? Ugh. And he talks about like, well, I'm really trying to do a European idea of the American West. Uh, yeah, I heard that. Yeah, Europe. Vin Vendors. Yes, right. Because I'm European yeah. now. What are you, Madonna? Yeah, Fuck now. off. Yeah, exactly. You're from he's, Texas. He's exactly. But now he's a European. He's been living there and he's wearing his Yersaki suits he's and he's been living there for suit. years and years and years. And so now he's taken on the culturally superior European point of view to look at Americans and tell us about ourselves. And you just want to say, Fuck you so hard. You're the ah! worst. Just You're the worst, crazy. Wes you Anderson. Really, you really are. You really, you really are the worst. Yeah. And I and really like, feel guilty now when I look back and think there were things I liked about. I had a friend who, even back then, who from Rushmore on, which was the first he saw, said, this guy is horrible and hateful and I can't believe you like him. And I, <laughs> and I would defend him. I would defend him, you know, in those very, or just for those early couple of films. And now I yeah, look back and I'm pretty like, funny. No, Rushmore's really. pretty funny. You know, but, it is. That's what I thought. But he's like, no, that Rushmore kid, the whole thing is, he already had read. He was prescient. Everything that we see now, he saw then. <laughs> yeah, it was amazing. It was really an amazing thing because, yeah, you know, I really tried to it. stick up for him. Oh yeah, I mean, oh man, Wes Anderson is. Mm, I, I, in a in a world like I, I wonder if he reads the news, you know. Mm. And I, again, we're not against like you and I. We're not against beauty. We're not oh, against. Oh God, we're so into it. That's yeah. what I think is maddening to be so into it. To feel so frustrated by most films that don't even have a look, don't even right. try to look like anything. <laughs> They're just these weirdly generic people who have seemed never to have seen that there are more than three kinds of shots, more than three kinds of cuts, more than they have no cinematic vocabulary whatsoever. It's so frustrating. Um, but yeah, so, but then to go and look at this and be like, okay, not like that. <laughs> you feel kind of yeah. bad. <laughs> It's got to be in conversation with something that matters. I mean, I guess you can say the unknown, like the aliens, it, you know, also always matters. It's always something in our world. Of course, mm -hmm. the presence of the atomic bomb gives anything gravitas, you know. Mm -hmm. But as always, I don't think he knows what he's saying. And we'll never find out because he's very clever in interviews and he'll allude to things like, you know, I don't, well, I'm not going to tell you what that means. It's a reference to something, but we'll Oh, exactly. Oh, that's maddening. He literally said yeah. that. Somebody asked them, him about something and he said, well, yes, it's a reference to something, but I don't want to say at this time. And you're right. like, what? It was, was nothing heavy or weighty. It was some, it was some innocuous thing. But he's right. got to save that revelation for a later time. You're just like, man, what are you uh -huh. on? <laughs> I just, what? I, I don't know. You're right. I don't know. I don't know if I understand at all what he thinks he's doing based on his interviews, which are just like a crazy person's interviews. Totally. That one and, was the nuttiest I think I've read. I wish I could yeah, remember what the question Wire. was. Somebody asked him something so simple. Like, what um, did you mean by X? And now I'm just blanking on it. Yeah, I'm not. I I will try to find it, but yeah. um, yeah. Uh, I I'm not really sure who he makes films for, but I do think it's that kind of like the, it's the audience of people who like where who have the New Yorker as their entire personality. I think I think that's that's who he makes films which, for. Yeah, and which just needs to end so bad, and I can't <laughs> I can't understand how it survives still. Surely the New Yorker's day glory days of being a cultural touchstone. 
And it once had great, great writers and was really important, like Robert Benchley and James Thurber, <laughs> really great Dorothy Parker, really great people used to write for The New Yorker. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's a long time in the rearview. That's way back in the rearview mirror. Long time ago. Now, it, you know, it's been coasting on its, you know, on its fumes for ages now. It's not some cutting edge thing that anyone should care about now. But that people are still reverent about this. It's like people who still think the New York Times is an unimpeachable news source. Right. It's like, what year is this? <laughs> Join I us in the present day. I think that's part of the fear I get out of his films. I know that's kind of a weird thing to say, but he strikes me as someone afraid to deal with the realities of our time, like truly, like in a way that makes me almost like have sympathy, mm. even despite his stupid suit. I mean, that suit, <laughs> that suit is evidence that he thinks it's like 19 or he wants it to be 1907 or something, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's there's something about him that's like really afraid to face the world as it is. Mm -hmm. And the this his films are the most elaborate like borderline i don't know pathological <laughs> or pathologically inflected like defense um i don't yeah. know no, they that disturb me that yeah no i know you're right and that, yeah they're off-putting in an, to an extraordinary degree now yeah i think <laughs> again was disguised early on there was a lot more liveliness there was a lot and you and again and bottle rocket was had a really raw emotional quality and it was very funny too it just seemed like you you he is really trans his worst tendencies have dominated more and more over the years and it's, yeah. it's frustrating that that movies are in such a bad way now that there's no way to get around dealing with wes anderson like a Wes Anderson movie is still a Wes Anderson movie. Yeah, still exactly. Like you find yourself compelled. Everyone is compelled to review it. People are yep. compelled to talk about it. You know, yep. all my various online feeds, people are all weighing in on it and saying, I know you might think you're sick of Wes Anderson, but I beg you to go and watch this masterpiece and reconsider. And I'm just like, oh, my God. I feel oh. like I read the same thing now every time one of his movies comes out. But I know. this one is the true masterpiece that proves all you doubters are wrong. Um. Yeah, it, it that does seem like that 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 really covers the sense of you're getting more and more remote as you go and more it's yeah. more and more playtime in a, the most elaborate little sandbox Build filled with toys. Totally. Building yeah. a fortress with your dolls, you know. Yeah. So and what I do you do of, Oh, go, go ahead. Go for it. No, no, I was going to bring us to the that final line. Um oh, but go for it. yeah. Oh, well, God, I, that was maddening. Yes. Yeah. Say it. Say the final line that is repeated 20 times. Okay, so this happened in the final scene. They're in an acting class. It's kind of like the actor's studio. Uh -huh. And they talk about um, how um, the playwright is trying to find a final line to wrap mm -hmm. up the play. And it's, you can't wake up. And someone from the audience offers, you can't wake up if you don't fall asleep. Am I mm -hmm. right about that? Yes. Okay, and then the whole acting class starts chanting it. Yes, and then like the there are weird close-ups of people like um, oh my god, what's his face? Willem Dafoe and Adrian yeah. Brody saying it. And Maya and, Hawk, and yeah, you, there'll be a spotlight on them, and then they'll say it separately. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and then every the whole and then the and alien they comes together, in, and then the alien comes in, right? And they, it's like this wild scene where in black and white, everyone's just chanted, "You can't wake up if you don't fall asleep." Yeah. And this is the thing that he that Wes Anderson would not reveal in the interview where it no, came that's from. That's what it was. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And he it's said a it's, reference. Yeah, it's a reference, but he's not going to tell us. So, all right. Yeah, and um, I was trying to even think 
before that, what's the context? Of the, it, 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 there was an acting, yeah. the Willem Dafoe is playing a very respected act, clearly a method actor teacher. And yes. they're, they're doing an exercise on sleeping and all yes. that's actually going on with you while you're sleeping. So you can, you know, we think there's just nothing, but there isn't. There's, are you dreaming or what are you dreaming? Oh, blah, blah, blah. Um, so they're, they're going to go into this exercise. Yeah, and the playwright is trying to concoct a scene that yeah. it conveys the experience of dreaming yeah. or falling asleep, rather. Why falling asleep. It, it's a sleep scene. Yeah, there's a sleep scene, and I can't remember who's involved <laughs> in the sleep scene. See, this is what I mean. This is another thing that drives me crazy. You feel like you, you should be making you know notes on your arm to try yeah, exactly. to remember all the disparate things, all the different framing devices, all the different references, all because you, you just lose the thread. You know, exactly. other people who love it say, oh, you have to go back and see the film a second time to really get it. Oh, my I'm God. like, yeah, but I don't want to feel like I have to make notes on my arm yeah. <laughs> to remember about the reference to the thing, to the bit, and constantly losing track of what's going on because none of it seems to matter. I, totally. And yeah. I, I think it, I did take notes, not on my arm, uh, in a book. Um, <laughs> um, I think it has to do with like seeing the alien and someone says that you can't wake up if you don't fall don't asleep. Don't fall asleep. Darn it. I don't know. Sorry. I literally can't remember it. I cannot remember what the, what the, what the, just what the trigger point, what the scene was that he was trying to come up with was that involved sleep. Who was supposed to be sleeping or what? Yeah. It doesn't. Anyway, it all gets overwhelmed by the, by the, the strangeness of the scene where, where, where the insistent chanting of this line. And again, when there's an insistently chanted line <laughs> at a climactic point of the film, it means <laughs> usually conventionally, it means something. Right. And then you start trying to think of what it means. And you're just like, it's just gobbledygook. Totally. You could just say, I don't know, artichokes three for a dollar. I mean, I, just, <laughs> I mean, I, what, I don't get it. I honestly, I have no notion. Is, is it like we're going to, I was thinking like we have been asleep as like a human race and we're waking up. And that's a good alien thing because now you can wake good. up. Yeah, and I'm like, that's weird because Wes Anderson. I think you're falling asleep faster than before. I don't. I mean, I, I don't know because it, it seems like it's urging you to fall asleep so you can wake up. Right. Okay. And honestly, so, in in my head, this is where I would go with it, but it has nothing to do with the film. I was like, maybe that's great because like we have to rest as a society so that we can like learn how to revision the world and like workaholism and capitalism and the hustle is killing everyone. So you can't wake up if you don't fall asleep. You got to yeah, fall but asleep. Nothing else in the film nothing, evokes nothing that really whatsoever. That. <laughs> not, there could be nothing more sleep inducing than, than the film. They're, they're out there <laughs> in the way it's the fifties for God's sake. They're out there in a bunch of cabins in the, in a town with a population of what they show you two eighty two. Totally. There's nothing out there. They don't no. have any devices to distract them. There is no distraction. So the, o- the only <laughs> thing I can do to get a toehold on that, and it's not even, is I did make a note. Everyone seems to be their job. Their person is like the same with their job. You know, like uh-huh. I'm a photographer. Oh, that's I'm true. A, it's my job. I'm to a general. Be a movie star. I'm yeah. A, yeah, I'm an astronomer. I'm a movie star. I'm a okay yeah yeah you're right that comes closer i'm a hotel manager and i'm always in character yes is that but i still can't do anything (laughs) i know um hmm 
it's it's maddening and and they just shouted at you in this crazy ass scene and you're like uh, i mean honestly i please dear listeners if you have a clue <laughs> if you have help any us idea out we would love my brain is taxed and i i can't yeah. make meaning of this i yeah, really I don't can't. know I, I don't know. I, I, that was the, that was the other. I forgot that that and the little dancing road rover. Those two things together oh. were what made me so angry. I'm so glad you remembered that. Yeah, I, yeah. I was elated when the film was over. I was like, Oh my god! Yeah, I practically wait. ran, ran out, and, and then and it was so beautiful when I ran out. This is what was my I ran out, and it had been raining all day, and it had already gotten dark, but it was still the sky was still sort of light and it had a magical color. And there were all these banked clouds still up there. And you could still see the contrast. And there was a gigantic American flag. And it was flapping in the wind. But it was flapping so slowly that I swear to God, it looked like slow-mo film. And I just stood there. And I just thought, that is, this is so beautiful that I I must go out at night. I must go out (laughs) as much as I can go out. Because that seemed so meaningful in ways that were inchoate. It was so gorgeous. Not oh because God. it was the American flag. Normally that would be like, oh God. Yeah, but yeah. just just the effects of nature. And then there were neon lights, of course. And there it was just this combination of, you know, magic nature with the weird cultural effects of our time. It was stunning. And I was just like, why is this more moving than everything I just saw? It just drove me crazy. It just drove this go. one crazy moment in the world was way more. And then that whole lifeless diorama obsessed again, a diorama obsessed for God's sake. How old is he? I know. I know. <laughs> so true. It is about death. It really is. But to me, it seems like it's not a reckoning with death. I didn't learn anything about death from his portrayal no. of it. I learned what it would look like to build an elaborate defense against dealing with death. That's what yes. the movie looks like. And he always does this. <laughs> There's always death in his film. Mm-hmm. It's always somebody just died or someone's important is going to die. He almost always kills an animal. Oh, literally dogs dying in Wes Anderson films happens over and over. And huh. often it's a little comical note um, in, Ooh. in rural Tannenbaum bombs. There's a lovely beagle who gets run over hmm. in the last happy shot. He gets creamed Jesus. by a car. Um, uh, let's see. What are the others? There's a cat that gets killed in the Grand Budapest Hotel. And it's the cherished cat of the Gold, Jeb Goldblum character. And he's carrying it in this very velvet bag that seems to have been designed to carry your dead cat. And it has a little, one perfectly placed, artistically placed blood splotch on it. Jesus. And he's carrying along very carefully because he loved this cat so much. And then he gets sick of carrying it and he passes a garbage can and he just suddenly throws the bag in the garbage with a kind of clang. That's death <laughs> in Wes Anderson films. God. Every sucks. time you think, oh my God, there's any kind of reckoning with anything, then there's a joke, there's a tweet cute effect, there's a ha ha, there's a, I don't know, does he think he isn't going to die? He's going to go around in his fucking yes. seersucker suit? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Long after the rest of us suckers are gone? Look, let me butcher, <laughs> what is it, Jacqueline Stewart's On Longing? It's about miniatures uh-huh. and also the gigantic. But she talks about the miniatures like a Victorian um, obsession, uh, like as death moves out of the home and mm-hmm. becomes the great taboo. I mean, Foucault most famously summarized this, but many other people thought it before him. You know, in the 19th century, it's not mm-hmm. sex that's the great taboo, it's death. Because like death moves into the hospital for the first time and Mm -hmm. out of people's like 
point of view, you know, or like, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, like, you know, a literal everyday experience. And so people collect. And yeah, it's, you know, it has to do, of course, with like the spoils of empire. Mm-hmm. But the, think of the Victorian home and its weird, obsessive, you know, collections mm-hmm. um, and, and miniatures. And and Jacqueline Stewart's argument is, uh, it's not Jacqueline Stewart, what the hell is her name? Anyway, she wrote the book On Longing. Um, her mm-hmm. argument is like, yeah, it's all this elaborate defense against death. Wow. That's yeah. Susan Stewart. Susan Stewart. Sorry, Susan, Susan Stewart. Stewart. Your beautiful book, On Longing, Narratives of the Miniature, the Gigantic, the Souvenir, and the Collection. Go ahead wow. and read your Susan Stewart to get a grip on Wes Anderson. Yes. No, that sounds <laughs> ideal. No, I wish I'd read it before this. I would have been a lot more confident. <laughs> That's great that you couldn't have ended this more perfectly. Whew. There's an odd <laughs> satisfaction now. I think we're there. We're All there. Right. We made it. <laughs> Oh, God, what a relief. Maybe we never yeah. have to talk about him again. I yeah, let's so. not. I mean, please, can there be some other films out yes. so that we don't have to see the Wes Anderson movie? Yes, yes. <laughs> I'm literally having to do that and the latest Pixar movie. There's so little. No. <laughs> and you want to talk, just talk about Tapped Out. Unreal. I can't even remember it. And I saw it like a day ago. It, that's what we're talking. Oh, it's so the whole thing is desiccated and dried up and blowing away in the wind cinema. It's just going. It's going. Oh, going. God. Okay. Anyway. Yeah. Huh, we shouldn't say that. <laughs> we, we see good things. We do. There's still things happening. We can't let it be dead yet. No, no. Cinema still, cinema goes on. Um, You know, if you like Wes Anderson, sorry, this episode is not for you. not for you. We'll put a warning. (laughs) Please don't write to us. We, you know, remember, he has a lot of powerful supporters. We don't need to hear from you. He he doesn't need us. He's got got the critical majority. They all adore him. So, yeah. All right. That we did it. That okay. is it for today. Thank you, dear li- <laughs> listeners. And sorry for those we've offended. And triple thanks to our subscribers who keep us in. Se- I'm actually going to say this. Seersucker suits. Hey, which you <laughs> don't want. If you're not a subscriber yet, but you like what you hear, please consider signing up with Patreon for all the film suck content instead of just the half that's available to the public. Join us in two weeks for more sensational film suck conversation. Until then, thank you again for joining us. Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>